1: My name is Leo Nocentelli. I'm a guitarist founding member of a group that goes by the name of The Meters. I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana.
0: Now, for folks who uh, don't know who The Meters are, um, and everyone should know who The Meters are, many people have heard stuff like Sissy Strut." sampled in hip-hop songs for generations Um, but you know it's almost like the house band of New Orleans I mean I know that's kind of a slogan but in a way the meters symbolize I think this confluence of uh, New Orleans sound you have the funk you have the, the brass but it's also rock and roll soul and what you brought out of this band into your solo record uh, another side is the American Roots music the backbone uh, you know
1: well I think I think uh, that when these four four guys got Art Zig George and myself when we finally got together to do some things I think it, it, it was a a magical thing man by the songs I, you know I I was the main writer for the song and it was um, it manifested itself in the studio with those three guys and uh, I think Act, I forgot the question <laughs> <But>. <laughs>
0: I don't know if there was a question Hmm. do I still have to do an intro or can I just let that funk play out for the rest of the podcast Well, I guess I'll do it anyway. My name is Zach Lupiton, your humble audio spirit guide. This is The Show on the Road. Thank you for listening. And as you just heard, we're going to be going on a journey with the amazing Leo Nocentelli, who many of you may not have heard of until this day. In fact, I've listened to the meters my whole life. I never knew who was behind the groove. And that's my job, to dive a little deeper into how the greatest music of all time was really made. Now, Leo and I have never met in person, but I think somehow we're kindred spirits because we love folk music and funk music and think they should get married and have a baby. And that's honestly what I'm trying to do with my band Dust Bowl Revival in creating a new music festival called the Paramount Ranch Sonic Boom. It's in L.A., October 15th. We're bringing Rebirth Brass Band from New Orleans to play with us. It's going to be magical. Please buy a ticket, and we'll see you there. Okay, without further ado, here's Leo Nocentelli of The Meters. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were going to be a professional musician? That you knew that this was going to be your life?
1: I think that's a normal thing, a automatic thing that happens. I knew it when I was like eight years old. It's pretty early, but 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 the fact of knowing it, didn't, not, it does not register in your brain then, right? But you you know uh, subliminally, subliminally, I guess. You know it. You know, you you automatically know it, man. When I first picked up a $2.98 plastic toy, four-string ukulele that my dad bought me in a five and dime store. And um, I guess another another sign of knowing is uh, the fact that when I picked it up, I started automatically start picking out tunes, picking out songs that I've Heard on the radio, heard from somewhere. So right. it's just an automatic thing, man. That I, I didn't know where it came from, but it just happened. You know, my dad was a was a was a um, not a great guitarist, nowhere near the level I've become in uh, a banjo player. But he had enough uh, information where it was something for me to grab onto and instill in my computer, in my brain. Um, that um, I like what I was what I was hearing, and I would I would like to try to duplicate what he was doing. So uh, you know, I guess I guess you do know know at a very early age.
0: Well, do you think that when you grow up in New Orleans, especially you know, I know you're you know from the Seventh Ward neighborhood, is that something that's more in the blood than more most places? You know that you see everyone around you doing second lines, doing the, the funeral marches, doing you know these family bands, the Indian, you know sort of dress it's 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 part of the culture like you almost don't have a choice for a lot of folks like you maybe
1: no you don't you don't unless you just don't like it at all when you see it you just try to stay away from it but i say the majority of uh people that comes up in new orleans they don't really have a choice because they thought they grew up with it they you know they just grew up with it um in terms of um the uh, seventh ward, thirteenth ward. I mean, New Orleans is, is is built upon different wards, you know. As you go through the city, you know, you got the third ward, you got the ninth ward, eighth ward, seventh ward, thirteenth ward. Right. Uh, I, but I think even though it's, it's segregated to different wards, everybody has the same the same feeling about. One particular thing, because you grew up in the seven ward on this, you know, it, it, it's the same thing as if you were in the thirteen ward. The second line is all you always. Everybody feels the same thing in the whole city.
0: And were you backing up folks like Otis Redding by the time you were a teenager?
1: I would say, yeah. I I, I first started. I first my first really serious encounter was in actually was in the studio. I is a guy by the name of Alvin Toussaint that was a very prolific writer and producer in New Orleans heard about this little guy you know, maybe about 14 years old around the city and um he hired me to do a session man and and uh it was the session wound up being a lee Dorsey session by uh, recording a song by the name of yaya and that came very came to be a very popular song in new orleans and around the world you know and uh that was the real that was the most serious uh, encounter i've had with with uh being trying to be a professional musician in the city and, and, and just kept on growing
0: oh how i love you all oh.
1: i sitting in la la waiting for my ya ya i sitting in la waiting for my ya ya oh. it
0: may sound funny but i don't believe she's coming out oh. This solo record that was maybe lost for 50 years, Another Side, which has been uh, reissued uh, and sort of really finished with this new uh, appreciation from you and your collaborators, I think shows the maybe the the roots and the folk base that is, uh, you know, a spine that was never appreciated as as holding up the meters, you know, that this is really American folk music at its core.
1: Well, I think... um where this record came from didn't have anything to do with the meters um the meters the story behind and it's really not a, it's, it's it's not a reissue this 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 record has never been issued before it never been out before it just happened to be with a reissue issuing um record label called light attic right um but to get back to the to the start to the, the story i want to say is this We, the Meters, had done three albums, funk albums, all instrumental for a record label by the name of Josie Records. Right. And that was all I knew. That was all we all knew. Right. And consequently, the the record company went defunct, Josie Records out of New York. So that left the Meters without a record company, without a record label or anything. Okay. So in terms of our producers, our producers and management, um, didn't have we didn't have any anything to go to the studio for so um i found myself stagnant and said well what i'm gonna what am i gonna do so you know so you know besides just playing the same stuff we we're recording with the media so i bought a couple of albums by james taylor yeah which uh, one of my favorite artists man and i started listening at. that i started listening at the the songs on on this record on his, on both of his records, what Sly them and Sweet Baby Jane, right? And uh, I started I started noticing the chord progressions. It was chord progression that I've never used before. Mm. And the lyrics he was talking it, he was telling stories, right? Whereas you know the stuff I was writing for the meters, it was instrumental. He didn't have to think of nothing, nothing. babe. I love you. I hate your guts. You know, it <laughs> yeah. wasn't none of that. You know, so I said so I, so I like what this guy is saying, and um, so I started writing writing songs accordingly to what I was hearing that acoustic sound of of of, of his records, and um, in my own way and, and implementing my own uh, my own uh, feelings about what I want how what I want to say and 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 how I want to play. So I went in the studio, man. I wrote ten songs and went in the studio with that. Uh, and recorded 10 songs like that, all acoustic. Uh, and and um, I used some of the guys, actually I used some of the guys in the meters to play it uh, along with me. Right. Uh, Alan Toussaint played on it, the keyboardist, and a very accomplished drummer by the name of James Black, which was an unbelievable player. This was in
0: 1971.
1: Yeah. it's a long time ago. <laughs> so I... I, this this particular record the, the the spiritual phenomenon phenomenon about this thing is that um it's it's really an unfinished product it's really unfinished man uh, but there was enough there when the record there was enough there when when i finished when i when when i when 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 when, 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 when the media got a record finally got a record deal from warner Brothers. we did about uh five albums with Warners I literally stopped that project, the, the, the other side project. I stopped, man. I stopped right. producing. I stopped working on it. And uh, the last thing I remember and since 1971 is I told the engineer Cosmo, I said, look, make me a copy of it and uh, let me go home and listen to that and see if I like it. That was it. it yeah. was so far as I was concerned, it is, was unfinished. So I completely forgot about it. For all for for decades, as the story goes, and uh, it went it went through. As I was writing stuff for the meters, with the new record label Warner's, it didn't exist no more in my mind. Right. So you know it. And then after after Katrina happened, uh, everything with the C St. Studio where it was stored. It, it was under 10 foot feet of water. So I am I just felt like it was, it was, didn't even exist. Even, the, even the, the, the copy I had didn't exist. Wow. Um, so it went, went on for decades and decades and decades, man, I me mean, not even thinking about this record. So then a guy got a call from a guy, about an, Mike, uh, Mike Nietzsche, I think Mike Nietzsche, he's, he's associated with the Beastie, Beastie boys who was, who was sampled, uh, some of the meters. Yeah. He told me he had a, he had a, a, a tape for me and he started rattling off the songs and I said whoa I said you got that tape this was like 50 some years ago Yeah. so what happened was the tape was in the storage compartment in, in Los Angeles for about maybe 20 years or more God bless just sitting there and, and um, the people who had the storage compartment lost it and it got foreclosed on
0: mm. and
1: the tapes were bought by flea market, at and then by you know by flea market, the tapes were then put on a table at a swap meet, uh, because you know when you buy when you buy the, the contents of somebody's foreclosed yep. storage space, you, know, you 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 buy everything that's in it. So the the tapes were in that storage space, so the the flea market bought it, and it, and and and, this, and they put it on the table at the swap meet. And Incredible. there was several other tapes that was involved. It was, just, it was about maybe about 10 meters, meters, a uh, quarter. And this was a quarter-inch uh, Masters. Right. It was quarter-inch copy. It wasn't the two-inch copy that you regularly have in the studio. These was a copy of the Master. Since the Master got destroyed in, in, in Katrina, this quarter-inch tape became the Master because that was the only thing that was left. So it, he... Uh, he told me he was gonna send me the tape. So he sent it to me. And I was astounded by, you know, by hearing it again and didn't think that it was gonna go any further. But little did I little did I know that he had played for this record label called Lightner Attic.
0: Right.
1: Light Attic fell in love with it, man, whatever it was. This quarter-inch tape. Did and it feel they like offered, they offered me a record deal and uh I leased it to them. They gave me some money and uh the record the, the 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 tape came out with the record uh called Un- um another side uh and it's called another side because it actually features another side of me right you know not the electric i'm basically electric i'm um, power rock funk guy you right know? and this was acoustic it was like completely opposite from what i usually do so i called it An- another side and um so the record came out in november 19th of this year and um Right now, they can't keep the records in the record stores for people wanting to want wanting it. A fifty-year-old record, which I consider is a perfect octomoron. It's a brand new, it's timeless, fifty-year-old <laughs> record, man. That's that's the hit. That's a hit record, and that's you know that's the story and the miraculous story behind uh yeah behind what it is today.
0: Do you feel like you? almost got a part of your soul back or something when they found that, like you like almost had a a microcosm of uh, your earlier life as a musician, as a songwriter that could have been lost forever with the damage of Katrina and, and sort of the passage of time. Did you feel like you almost reclaimed some part of yourself when they found that? No
1: doubt, doubt, man. Uh, You you know, I think it it goes further than that. Uh, It's a certain spirituality about what happened. Yeah. What happened with this record and to me? To me, um, it's you know it's up it's up for a Grammy, you know, in the historical uh, sector, the historical uh, category.
0: Right. What happened
1: to me um, is not of this earth, man.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm pinching myself. It's it's spiritual. It's I can't think about it as, but a spiritual spiritual uh, phenomenon, man.
0: Well, um, if you think about that that first song thinking of the day, there's something almost foreshadowing about it. You know, when you're thinking about tomorrow, tomorrow never comes. Uh, yeah. Thinking about tomorrow until my day is done. You know, it's almost like you are singing into the future back in 1972 uh, hoping that this song, that this part of you will be heard and it's never going to have the chance to be heard until now. You know, which is right. kind of magic.
1: You know. Yeah. Well, I think every everything you do in life, you know, it, it reflects it reflects the future. You know, you don't know it. We don't know it. Right. We're doing it, but the future is the present right now as we're speaking. This what we're doing now is gonna reflect in the future. Sitting and waiting for the glorious day when I could moment when i could hold you tight when i could kiss you in the morning squeeze you at night
0: well you have my vote i think i think it's about uh, connecting the generations too like that you have hip hop producers and collectors appreciating this and saving it and bringing it back i think is what's so important you know i think um, when i hear uh, a song like Riverfront i can hear the groove that the meters had mastered so well underneath yeah. it but it's unmistakably your storytelling right and that's what's new yeah. in this record yeah. is that you're telling about these dock workers about the new orleans sort of working class um you know stories that maybe get lost in some of the funk stuff that is more but,
1: just about the groove and well not not, not, to, cut, not to, say to cut you off but i got that idea um the riverfront from a guy by the name of Aaron Neville. Aaron, you know, we all grew up together, uptown. Well, we all kind of grew up together, man. And and Aaron, I remember Aaron working on the riverfront. He mm-hmm. was carry, he used to carry bananas from from the boats, mm-hmm. you know, from the cargo. So when I thought about that song, I was thinking about Aaron. Um, yeah. What he was doing. I mean, he didn't quite. he was. It wasn't that quite profound in, in all the little things that's that's written in the song, but. When I thought about a guy working on a riverfront, I just extrapolated more than carrying bananas, which he did. And that's what I that's why I got the idea from him working on the riverfront. They were never working on the riverfront.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh... My great grandfather, who I never met, you know, he died in an accident as a uh, longshoreman in New York City, and uh, you know, a lot of those stories never get told. You know,
1: they sort of get lost. Um, and, yeah. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of people don't know the experience. Yeah. Of, of what goes down when you're working on a riverfront, you know. Well, well also know. during this last, uh, you know, crazy
0: pandemic years, the supply chain breakdown in the port here in LA and Long Beach like you know that really is how a lot of this country gets the things that they try to bring into their home they, they buy oh, yeah. online like, you can't buy anything without these dock workers actually getting it off the boats getting it out of the shipping containers getting them into trucks you know there's a whole system in place that yeah. if a couple people don't show up because they're sick or they're you know they can't do it the whole yeah, system falls apart you know just kind yeah, of yeah one of the
1: one of the parts in the lyrics because people don't know that it, what it went through before it wind before they wind up seeing it on the counter and going and buying it at the store, right? And paying for that at the counter. It says because uh, it all came here through through cargo, and and and, and trains and, and and freight and freight have to all that stuff has to be loaded. And the lyric said, shall I get my lunch at lunchtime?" Right. Thinking about where I've been the whistle blows, there I go, back to work again. Then it says um, I get my um, I, uh, the whistle blows in the evening, just about half past six.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm thinking about that broken cargo hatch that I forgot to fix. Good I guess I'll fix it tomorrow, because tomorrow is another day. I'm still looking forward to Friday, because that's when I get my pay. They have That meant that they had to go into that cargo that was broken and fixed mm. it because that's where all the food and everything came through that 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 particular cargo hatch. Right. And you have to fix it. That winds up on everybody's food table. Well,
0: I think as, you know, working musicians, you know, a lot of folks do not appreciate musicians and songwriters as part of the working class in this country, part of the, the people that go to work and create something that everyone needs desperately, you know, Uh, That song, Getting Nowhere, which has this really cool driving guitar beat, Um, you know, you could see the frustration that you had as a songwriter, even back in the 70s, of not being able to be sort of appreciated or or compensated. I know a lot of you guys get screwed out of royalties. It's it's so hard to know uh, when you decide that I can't make this my life work anymore. You know, like... Yeah. I have a, a young daughter now. She's six seven months old. Um, you know, I tour with my band Dust Bowl Revival as much as I can. But it it's th- this push and pull of like, when is it actually going to <laughs> be yeah. enough? And it's never really enough right now. No, you know, no. you're getting nowhere. It feels that, like,
1: even though it, you're loving it. it that you, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that song because uh, that's what the, those songs. I the three songs on that on that record that. I've heard fans of mine and people in bands—they're mm-hmm. playing it live on their gigs. Yeah, already in this it, lick, really, like reaching high. It's—it's it's all about you know. It's all about you in the same business as—is—is as, as this guy or this huh. girl or this lady, and they—they they seem to prosper. They seem to be prospering, but you're not. And because some of the lyric reflectors say reaching high but not getting nowhere. Right. I must have gotten on the wrong cloud. Uh-huh. Watching people fly right on by me. I must have gotten lost in the crowd. That means that, hey, how could this person have a hit record and and I don't. And I don't have it. So it's you know it's it has this frustration but and like like you said, this it's something you have to uh Love I've been in it for 60 years. So if you don't love something and have a passion about it, right. there's no way you there's no way you're gonna do this for all this time and not have that kind of strong passion. Could there be anyone to tell me where I went wrong? There's got to be a way and I know I must.
0: Well, it's like, again, is it a choice at a certain point? Like, I feel like it's beyond a choice for me, right? Like, the songs hit me, everything stops. I have to kind of put everything aside. But at a certain point, you start to look around. You're like, well, is this a job, you know? Or is it a uh, passion? And can it be both? I don't know. You know, I think that's when, you know, you have to decide sometimes. um, And it's hard to decide. You know, you see people like... Yeah. Um, you know, you played with a lot of the meters folks in
1: Doctor John's hit record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. well, a passion uh, to me to look at it as work, and it might be the same in your case to look at it as work, and and to make a decision to to uh how When does it stop? Right. Uh, should I keep going, or when do I make? When do I decide to stop? That's where. The passion is the common denominator. Yeah, you have to look at and say, "Well, that pa- when that passion hits hits you, that's never going to leave." That's when you know, you know, if the passion lessens, mm-hmm. then it's time to get out. Yeah, but if the passion is still strong, you're going to keep on going, regardless if you got ten children. Yeah, regardless of what you're going to try your best to keep going, and some things happen in your life that um. That it, the passion, the passion less, lessens. Right. Like me, like right now, I don't, I don't have the passion that I had years ago. Yeah, the the passion has subsided, and I think it's because, um, uh, not because of the music, or I'm not, you know, playing the music I want to play, but the more, that it's it's the deterioration of the business. Yeah, this is a a brutal brutal business and and I'm on the air and I can't speak but the truth this business of music is very brutal and for anybody that wants that that's trying to think about getting into it there's there's ways to defeat the brutality and that's through education of knowing what this business is about it's not all about getting on the stage and playing and having fun and having everybody clapping it's not all about that because the longer you the longer you do it Um, the brutality is still there, and it's 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 a rough business, man. And and I've I've lost, uh, I think I've lost passion for it because of that. I do what I do, and I I do it well. I haven't slacked up. I haven't lost anything. Uh, I guess that's through the God-given talent that I still have, right? And at my age, but that doesn't dismiss. What I have to deal with, the peripheral brutality that's in this stinky business. <laughs> yeah. Still. Well, getting getting back
0: to, uh, you know, you playing on such, you know, legendary albums like Dr. John's Right Place, Wrong Time, you know, that is an album that a- sort of lifted a guy like Dr. John, which was, you know, he was a part of the New Orleans Roots funk scene. You know, he could have just sort of been another guy playing his piano in a dark room. And all of a sudden that record is a pop hit, right? And yeah. it's still being played on classic rock radio to this day. You know, does it feel weird hearing that still be a, you know, a part of the culture or, you know, is it gratifying to hear you playing Ooh, on that?
1: Uh, oh, yeah, of course. When I hear it, I, I'm, I'm elated that it's playing. I'm proud of it. you know, And I'm proud of what I did. You know, with it and um, and the success that it gave Dr. John and and the meters actually. You know, with the right, Dr. John, the pieces came all came together uh, for that record to become recognizable and recognized. You know, all the pieces came together, man. Everything has to come together it had the right people believing in Dr. John that he could do it he happened to have the right songs that he wrote yeah he happened to have the right producer Alan Tucson. yeah to produce it and lastly he had the right musicians the meters yeah so when all of those things you have all of those components man it can't help but come out great it can't help but come out with Sounded like something that people would want to hear, and I think that would happened All the people came together, man. sneaking, out down the street. See my with who I meet.
0: I mean, I think what is interesting about this uh, another side record is that. It shows again the connection between folk music, roots music, and the New Orleans funk soul yeah. sound, right? That oh, yeah. they're not totally separate worlds, that they no. actually can be and should be connected more often. That's what I love most about Bill Withers', you know, first few records is that, you know, he's playing an acoustic guitar, but he's got Booker T and the MGs as his backup band. It's like the perfect marriage of American music. It just like doesn't happen that
1: often (laughs) yeah yeah well you know um i think that's a good a good um a good description a good comparison you know uh bill withers he's um um he's one of those kind of guys man and and when he you know i just i just so happened to know knew him briefly but Mm. i more importantly terry i knew the players that he used to record those songs right they were oh, all good friends of mine. And uh, a guy by the name of James Gatson, yeah. was on drums. Um, um, I think James, I think Bill looked at James as a uh, as, as as somebody that he had to have. Join him mu- musically. Gatson is still living, you know. Uh, but Gatson, James Gatson, man, I want to mention his name, man. He's an unbelievable player, drums. And he contributed a lot to And he, Gatten, was, was basically a funk guy, and I think that's what gave Bill Withers rhythm and um, his lyrics that funk folk kind of feel. Right. Sometimes it all it sometimes it always only takes one one person to do that, you know. And uh, I think that's what happened with um, with um, you know with 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 my record, you know, on the other side. You know, because I'm I'm playing acoustic, but I got some great players on there. George Porter, bass player with the Meters. Uh, Z, uh Zig playing on a couple of tracks. Alan Toussaint was the producer of the Meters. Uh, a guy by the name of James Jane Black, which is a very prolific uh jazz and funk player. So even though it has this folk uh orientations, it you you cannot dismiss the 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 unadulterated funk. Funk that's in, in, in embodied on in this record, you know, and I think that's what that's what people, you know, got attracted to, you know, and I think that's what made it sound rather than sound old; it sounded new. And um, you have you have to have that. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a good comparison—a of, of, of funk, a of funk folk record. <laughs> I mean, that's the
0: music at. that I've been trying to make for my whole, you know, sort of. <laughs> life as a songwriter and i feel like a lot of times folks are like well why don't you just have a, a a folk band or a a funk band like why do you why are you trying to do both it makes no sense but it, i think it does make perfect sense i think give me back my loving um there's another song on there that you know james yeah. black uh the, the drummer i think really highlights that just oh yeah oh yeah sensual groove man
1: yeah yeah that, that's him on uh on on riverfront too You know, that's Jane Black, man. Uh, And Give Me Back back My loving, that's James. And James was a very difficult guy to deal with. He had his demons and um, he was a genius, man. He just, he played everything. He played trumpet, he played piano, he played drums and he played them all prolifically, man. Mm. And he just, but his head was screwed on backwards. And uh, I just luckily ran into him. It was a magical thing, I guess, and got him to play on this stuff, man. I don't see how I did it. I not I think back. I don't even remember how I approached him to even play on this stuff. But um, he played. He played on it, man. And 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 I think he, everybody on that that record made made the record what it is. Hurry, won't you give me back my it Hurry. Won't you give, me back my you give me back my loving? Hurry. Won't you give me back my loving? Hurry. Won't you give me back my loving? Hurry. Won't right. you give me back my loving? Hurry. Won't you give me back my loving?
0: Do you feel like at your, uh, (laughs) advanced, uh, beautiful age that playing live, um, means something different than when you were a young man? Like, does it feel physically different or is it just the same adrenaline hitting you when you get up there?
1: No no doubt. I mean, as the years go by, you know, you you play with more, more adrenaline. I feel it I feel it more now, uh, than when I was, you know, when I was younger, I feel like I have to, uh. Because I've learned so much, you know, over the years, you know, and I feel like I want to show people, fans, peers, how much I've learned. And every time I pick up the guitar, whether it's playing acoustic guitar or electric, um, I try to profess, look what I could do. You know, I could do this now. I could do more of this now because I'm older. I guess you might call it showing off. Yeah you know but but in, in in a good way you know i want just want to show what i could do and i think that that um it has that it has for me now has that effect um that even though i've been around a long time look what i still could do i still could do this and i still could do that so that's always a challenging to do
0: when you see yourself um you know maybe looking down from another dimension you know you're not going to be around forever <laughs> let's just say 50 years from now and you, you see young folks discovering uh, your guitar work in the meters and, and even stuff that you played, you know, when you were a young man with the Supremes or, uh, you know, Otis Redding, it's like, do you feel like um, there's a song or two that you wish could be sort of projected into the stars that you love
1: more than almost any other song? Uh. I don't know. I've played on so much, so many things, man. I, You know, I think... I think I will always think about the song Sissy Strut" that I wrote, I yeah. think, for the meters and how it originated, how it happened, and you know what it has become, what people think about it, how many times it's been used in movies, opening for the World Series, sampled. Yeah. I think "Sister Strut." Will always be the premiere um, song in my life that I contribute to. You know that I that I think about that I did you know, the way it, the way it happened. It was wasn't planned, you know. We were playing at a club called the Ivanhoe on Bourbon Street, which was in the same configuration as the Meters, but we wasn't called the Meters then.
0: Mm.
1: Um, we would open up a song, open up our set with everybody opened up a set with called song called "Holdin." Uh, I forget the name of the group that did it, and uh, I got tired of uh, opening up our set with that. And so I introduced that, I introduced the melody that had been in my head for a down. Uh, and I introduced it to George, Art, and Zig, the drummer. And um, we started opening up our sets with that song, with that melody. It wasn't even a name. And, uh, you know, this guy comes in to play down to a prolific producer around town. To so look, we want you guys to record, you know, record record this, this, these, these stuff here that you were doing. So we went in the studio and recorded recorded the song. And the song came out and sold about 250,000 copies within within two weeks. That'll work. Yeah. So I think that song will always stick out in my mind, you know, my might not be one of my favorites, but it's uh, it's, it's death has this uh had this meaning.
0: You know, it's interesting when you hear uh, your version of Elton John's classic Your Song on, uh, you know, another side. It was recorded when it was still fresh. It just sort of been unleashed onto the airwaves. Yeah. And you can yeah. sort of feel the excitement of you singing it like it it wasn't a song that we almost take for granted as a classic. It was just brand new. Um, yeah. How did you decide to include that onto these recordings? i have no idea
1: <laughs> uh i you know i guess i mean I, i've always liked the song when it first came out i would say that it didn't it had it had some special quality chord progression and uh I, I didn't even understand what the lyrics was about you know i just liked the way this guy elton john phrased it, and, and i wanted to do the same thing you know or come close to it as a matter of fact, I got a, um, I got a note from Elton, uh, from his uh, manager, his manager, Elton had sent a, a note about congratulating me and what he, and he thought really highly of what I did with his song. And I was blown away. He said, you know, please tell, please tell him that, you know, I really love what he did. How wonderful life is while you're in the world. And that really floored me when uh, his management wrote the record label, wrote, wrote, wrote the wrote the light, the attic, and, and Matt Sullivan is the name. And uh Matt sent me the 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 the, the text that what Elton John sent to his management. And the management actually knew Matt Sullivan and said, hey, listen, I want to send you this. You tell Leo, this is what Elton said about what he did with, with his performance on, on your song. That blew me away. That's awesome. Yeah. Now that is done. I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind what I put down in
0: If there's someone that you could bring back from the dead or that you could sort of astral project into the studio with you, um,
1: who would you love to collaborate with? oh wow man that's a hard question that's a good one but very very difficult to answer you know um, I think um, this guy I kind of patterned my my songwriting and my learning process of structuring songs how they should be structured you know with the with the intro and the and the verses and the bridges and stuff like that. i patterned it by learning, by playing with this guy in the studio so much by, by the name of Alan Tucson. Yeah. Um, he always with a mentor of mine. And I learned so much from him. And little did I know, man, little did I know that as much as I felt about him, he felt the same way about me. That's this beautiful. little old man that he hired to the point where he wrote a song called leo Hmm. yeah i mean it's and until this very moment i think about this i'm saying this guy i mean he could have wrote about anything in anybody yeah why why did he decide to write a song about a guy that he hired as a musician so I'm saying he must have been really impressed by by who I was and what I did, and the song is he performed it live at the jazz fest, man. Uh, and if you look it up, you look it up on the YouTube. It's 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 called uh, it's an interview I did. Uh, the song is called Leo, hmm. and you look it up. You might want to put it in this thing, man. And and the lyrics, some of the lyrics is like I'm saying what. And so hmm. when, he, I, when I heard the song, he said, man, I'm gonna send you a demo of it. Mm. So I couldn't understand it when he did it at the Jazz Fest. He said, I'm going to send you a demo. So he sent the demo about I said, whoa. Well, he played all the parts. Took mm. it upon himself to play all the keyboard parts, all the horn stabs on the keyboard, huh. the background vocals and everything, and lead vocals, and he sung it. And he did the demo where he could play it for the band, of the performer at the Jazz Fest. Nice. And, the, and it, the song is, anybody seen Leo? Which way did he go? Mm. Left the funky funky trail. Uh, Yeah. uh, uh, Taking music higher, setting grooves on fire. Mm. Funky groove that heard around the world. He walked the walk. He talked the talk. (laughs) He lived and breathed music. Uh, uh, uh. Coming up with new things with the New Orleans thing. Other players knew him around the world. Either me the man or the band. <laughs> the whole world knows. Leo. You know, me.
0: Well, I think well, that your your guitar playing, you know, has this essential um quality to what makes I would say New Orleans music, but a lot of this sort of um, funk and rock and roll stuff from the seventies shine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a certain sound. When you think back on uh, your guitar tone back then, you know, do you did you come up with a certain setting or a certain um, no. you know, energy no. that you felt like this was my sound, or did it just sort of evolve?
1: I don't think I don't think anybody who gets the kind of recognition that I've gotten um, plans anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think if you start planning things it, 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 it fizzles out, Uh but things happen that it it doesn't have no meaning to it. But I think when things happen on a natural scale, it just, you know, I'm just Leo, I'm not this person, I'm just Leo, then it becomes unique. And I think the uniqueness brings out the special, the the special part of what, of what that is, like you said, the sound. Mm Is just unplanned. It's you know, it's something you try to dial up, and you like that song, that sound, that sound. Mm -hmm. You dial it, amplifier, uh, and uh, you stick with it. And if you believe in that sound, that you feel good about it, then it manifests itself into who you are, and it becomes it becomes you. Mm. And I don't think you could plan nothing like that. Well, I'm I'm gonna buy a. A Fender, a Fender guitar. I'm going to buy a Straton. I'm going to buy a, 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 um, a Fender amp and I'm going to have this sound. Uh-huh. You can't plan that.
0: What were you playing on Hey Pocky Away? Like, what was that guitar and amp?
1: Do you remember? That was, man, That all of that stuff. All of the five albums we did was, record, was recorded with a, a guitar called a Starcaster. Mm-hmm. That Starcaster. Is on the wall of the Hard Rock Cafe in New Orleans. Mm. That nobody else played one. Nobody. I was the only one that played the Starcaster with any kind of recognition. Um, How did you get that guitar? Like, what what was the story hey behind man, getting that? Hey, there? another unpl- unplanned thing is a store called Warlines That's not there no more. It's, it's now the Palace Cafe. It's on mm. Canal Street. I saw this guitar on the wall, and it was black. I said, "Whoa, um, I, wow!" And that's why I asked the guy. I said, "Man, uh, how much is this guitar here?" And it was a semi hollow body guitar. Mm-hmm. I said, how much the guitar? And the guy said, 750 dollars." Believe it or not, back then, mm. and it, you know it's like five six grand now, yeah. but, but well, they don't make them anymore so Number One. Um, yeah, so I bought it and I just fell in love with it, man. And and um that's all I've ever that's all I used, hmm. you know, until, until you know until I I started, you know, I I I uh I was living in Los Angeles and um I had it planted up there too. And I got into some really money problems. I was broke and I needed the whole tell the whole history behind it. I needed money really bad you know just to keep a roof over my head right um there's a there's a store called norm's rare guitars Mm -hmm. in los angeles you might know of it yeah you know so norm was a good friend of mine and he knew what i did with the beaters and stuff so he respected me. so i used to go up in there to get you know stuff and so i needed money really bad so Norm said, "Listen, man. Say you ever want to sell a guitar, let me let me know." I said, "Okay." So I went there with the guitar because I needed I needed money. Mm. And I sold that stock after to Norm for four mm. thousand dollars. Yeah, well, I don't know How much was it? Um, no, wait, I don't forget it. Might not yet. Yeah. I think it was yeah about four grand, which I that was a lot of money back then, you know, yeah this was you know, a lot of money back then, man, four thousand I thought I was like, whoa I, I was rich, but what I didn't know was, um they was aware of see the artifact that you see on the wall of the hard rock and stuff like that. everybody thinks those things were given, right. to the hard rock. but you know the hard rock bought them from these different artists. And and they all they paid money for it. So what so I sold my Starcaster to Norm. And then Norm, who was educated to that, got in contact with the Hard Rock Cafe and and sold it to them for three, probably twice, three times as much.
0: You ever want to get it back?
1: Do I want to get it back? Yeah. I, they'll, they'll never give it back to me. They'll never get it. I'll never get it back. I'm satisfied. You know, I'm good. I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm good with that, man. Uh, you know, they, you know, it's it's serving its purpose.
0: I never understood why, you know, guitar players, if you love a guitar that you write, write on that you perform with, why would you want a bunch of guitars, right? Um, mm-hmm. I have this Martin Cherrywood acoustic that I've been pretty much playing live with exclusively for the last 10 years but it's getting pretty beat up you know it's got a hole in it it's you know it's 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 my road dog but i i knew that i needed to start maybe looking for a something that could be a little more durable that could have a little more of an electric and acoustic sound together and i i saw this um arch top made by this uh luthier uh, eric schulte it's like a handmade guitar i, I live down the street from mccabe's guitar shop which is a awesome place here in Santa Monica in LA and I have to like fall in love with a guitar it's like a romance you know Uh (laughs) and I only buy I've only bought a couple guitars my whole life I have this 1950 uh, Gibson archtop that I play mostly at home and write on but I don't really want to bring it out and so this Uh one I I just finally bought I I kept going in there over and over again uh, and they were like bro you gotta like make a decision I think it's it's calling to you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know and i felt it i I felt the guitar calling to me in a weird sp- sort of spiritual way um and i brought my little daughter in there and i played the guitar for her and she was like smiling her ass off the whole time and i was like all right i gotta bring this baby home
1: <laughs> the baby yeah, and the guitar <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have about oh man 30 some guitars yeah that's like looking at i got them all lined up on on um and, and and stands and I look at them every day. Yeah, I I only use a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, but just to have them is like my baby. They become your babies. Yeah, they be- actually become your babies, man. Well, I think so, what's interesting yeah. is that your
0: guitar playing has been sort of threading throughout a lot of American music that people may not even realize. Right, so you can't really imagine someone playing, you know, with Etta James, but also touring with Jimmy Buffett. Right. That's like, how could that be possible? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. And then, and then good, then go do a tour, six, month tour with Robert Palmer. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it It's, it's a pretty, uh, I've had a, you know, a very unique career, man, to be able to adjust to, to whatever is put in front of me, you know? And I think that's the way I came up. I came up having to learn how to play different genres of music right? just to survive. You know, I do three or four gigs in one day. I go do a Dixieland gig and I yeah. do another R&B gig after that. And I go do a jazz gig after that. So you have to learn how to do that. And have the talent, yeah. That you have to have the ability to do that, but you had to be able to do that to survive, right? In New Orleans, you know, because the gigs wouldn't, you know, the gigs wouldn't play back then. The gigs wouldn't pay, but like you get a, you get a gig that pay you twenty dollars, right? For all, paying you twenty, that was a lot of money, man. Yeah. So you do about two or three of them gigs a day in the twenty four hour period. You got what sixty dollars. That was. That was that would pay that paid the rent yeah. and more. You know? And nowhere near that today. You know, you in up boy, don't talk about you. they used to call it a sense. Hey Say man, I got a ten cent gig. Yeah. I played gigs coming up for ten dollars. Right. But it still was money. It still was that was a lot of money then. Right. You know? Um when gas when gas cost you thirty cents a gallon yep you know um so i say yeah how much the gig paying man it's 30 cents i said a 30 cent gig what ah that was like making a thousand (laughs) dollars
0: today let's uh let's take us out with uh the really beautiful uh love song you have on here you've become a habit i think folks you know who don't know your work um really should because i think you are a backbone of what american music really is in and, uh, and again i think the the combination of soul music folk music roots funk rock and roll that's what makes uh i think our music in this country so timeless and so needed everywhere right it's the it's the the soul that's in all of it and um what you created in another side i think is my favorite thing which is bringing the storytelling of folk music with this groovy funk backbeat. And I love what yeah. you, you know, that this is finally into the world now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's needed.
1: But yeah, the comment on, on before we leave, the yeah. comment on You Become a Habit, you know, quite frankly, I, I got that, I got that idea. There's a movie just where the, where the public would know. Uh-huh. I got, there's a movie called Armour LaDue and it came out years ago. It starred Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Yep. And when the movie, came out, I fell in love with that music, that movie as a kid. And uh, Shirley MacLaine was a splitty of the street. And, but they couldn't, they couldn't profess that in the movie because it was, you know, everybody, it was an all age movie and jack lemon was a train conductor mm. and he, he, they, they wound up befriending each other and and they wind up being together all the time and he just like couldn't help but being around her, but it wasn't in a in a sexual way because he couldn't show that on 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 a tv i mean on a movie but i did i took it another step further, mm. you know Shirley McLean was a was a prostitute, right. She was a lady of the night. And this guy who, who was John Lemon was a guy that just he had relationships with her and he fell in love with and her name was Fancy. Uh, he fell in love with Fancy, He fell in love with her. Hmm. And uh, she became a habit. Him buying, you know, she, she selling it to him and stuff like that. Yeah. She she became a habit to him. And uh, because he said, uh, Fancy was a real mistreater. All the folks would gather to see her. She'd love every night. Men would fuss and fight. Turn you on in a flash and turn you off just as fast. (laughs) Oh, Fancy, you become a habit to me. I was lonely one afternoon. I thought I'd take a walk with the moon. She stepped out the dark. That's when she took my heart. She turned me on from night until dawn. Oh, Fancy, you become a habit to me.
0: Well, I think uh, the world needs this music right now, and I'm glad that you're getting out there.
1: There we go. All right. Thank you.
0: All right, man. We'll keep up the good work. Thanks again. All right, man. Thanks so much.
1: Bye. Whoa, fancy. you become a habit to me.
0: There he goes. Leo Nocentelli, everybody. You can go to leonocentelli.com for his newest record. It's called Another Side. Yes, 50 Years in the Making, released by Light in the Attic Records. What a cool treasure to have for your collection. And there's a really cool uh, colored vinyl you can get, too. If you know me at all, you know that I love the music of New Orleans so much. And uh, our music festival, the Paramount Ranch Sonic Boom, which Dust Bowl Revival is hosting October 15th in LA, will feature Grammy winners Rebirth Brass Band direct from NOLA. As always, The Show on the Road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, buy a festival ticket if you can, and we'll see you on the trail.
1: Well, fancy
0: is the best song.